0: Luke chapter 14, verse 25, and we'll be looking down to verse 35. And let's read that. Luke 14, verse 25, down to verse 35. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, "'If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple.' whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Let he uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is one of those passages that's not hard to understand, but it is hard to read, it's hard to teach, because it cuts so close to home and challenges us so deeply. If we're really listening, these verses will leave none of us unscathed. And that's for our good, though, because it will bring us closer to Christ and closer to Christlikeness. Well, what's the setting here? setting, verse 25, large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them. And we've shifted from the location earlier in this chapter. Remember Jesus is in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees having a Sabbath meal. He heals a man with dropsy and there's subsequent discussions there. But now he is apparently in wide open spaces where large crowds can walk behind him. And it doesn't say exactly where he is, but We think it might be in Perea. Remember, that's across the Jordan from Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee. And now we have this crowd behind him. This sounds like other times in Luke where Jesus has these large crowds. Uh, Earlier, chapter 13, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So he's, he's headed towards Jerusalem, maybe not geographically, but his mind is... Focused on the cross at this point. This is just a few months, if not less, before his crucifixion. And we have these large crowds following him in different places in Luke chapter 5. The news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Uh, And chapter 6 Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So from all over the, the area, there were people trying to see Jesus. Luke 9, we have the feeding of the 5,000, and it was not 5,000 people, it was 5,000 men, so it could be 10, 20,000 or more people who were around Jesus when he fed them. And then not too long ago in Luke 12, we had this situation where there are many thousands of people gathering together that they were all stepping on each other. So we have, again, a large, large crowd from, uh, from the surrounding area following Jesus. And interesting detail here, it says, he turned and said to them, see, I think this might be an eyewitness account, he's walking along and has this large group and he just turns around and speaks to this great crowd gathered behind him, following him around. And then he says something shocking and completely unexpected, I think, at least for these people. Uh, if you had a lot of people following you, Uh, presumably wanting to hear from you. You might welcome them. I'm so glad to have you following me. But Jesus says something that's different from that. He talks about the commitment required of his disciples. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not exactly seeker-sensitive, right? Catering to the, the wants of the crowd. Well, look at the end of this verse. We have this term disciple, and we've talked about that many times before. It comes from a word that means to follow, and sometimes we think of the disciples, we think of the twelve, or maybe a disciple is a super-Christian. We have ordinary Christians, but a disciple is one step above. But it simply means a follower or a learner, someone who goes where the leader goes and sits at his feet and listens. Now, the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles were literally his followers. They would go with him from place to place. But again, the term disciple is a word for all Christians, not for some super Christian, uh, caste. Now, the ones in this crowd were also literally following Jesus, and probably many of them, if you ask them, might call themselves his disciples or want to be his disciples. So they might be asking themselves, as they follow Jesus, what do I have to do to be his disciple? And Jesus' answer, what is it? How do you become my disciple? You hate. In order to become my disciple, you have to hate. That's pretty strong and, again, shocking, surprising words. It sounds a bit like Matthew 10, although not so strong. Matthew 10, verse 37. We'll actually go back a couple more verses to get some context. Matthew 10, look at verse 35. Jesus says, uh, sorry, verse 34, let's, yeah, verse 35. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Again, that's sort of shocking words from uh, as well from Jesus. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me Is not worthy of me. So in Matthew, Jesus has a more positive way of looking at these things. You have to love Jesus more than you love those who are closest to you. But in Luke 14, he says it this way you must hate your father, mother, wife, and so forth, and even your own life to be Jesus' disciples. Now, the question we ask ourselves do we take this literally? Do we actually tell our wife and children that we hate them? Next Sunday is Mother's Day. Right? Imagine the Mother's Day card. If people took this verse literally, it would not probably make Mother very happy. It quickly becomes absurd, even contradictory to the rest of Scripture to say that this actually means we must hate these people. Remember the second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a command in John fifteen, twelve, where we are to love one another. Jesus says, just as I have loved you. So we love our neighbor. We love our fellow disciples. Even in Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you want to take Jesus extremely literally, you say, okay, Jesus says I must love my neighbor. I must love other disciples. I must love my enemies. But do we hate ourselves and our family on top of that? So there's some, some people we must love. Some people we must hate. Those ones who we know the best, we, we are closest to. What about when Jesus quotes the commandment to honor our father and mother? He says you must honor them. But he also says here in Luke 14, we're supposed to hate them. Do we honor our parents and still hate them? What about when Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, Jesus says we are to hate our wives. Is Paul contradicting Jesus? Now, it would be ridiculous to interpret Jesus as saying here that we need to actually hate our lives and our families. But we don't want to just skip lightly over this statement and say Jesus is exaggerating for a fact and we sort of smile at the absurdity of the hyperbole and move on. This is a very serious thing. Whatever it means to hate those closest to us and even our own life, we must do it if we want to be Jesus' disciples. And the only way to make this word hate makes sense with the rest of Scripture's commands to love, is to understand Jesus is using it in a a relative sense. Compared to your love for Christ and commitment to him, all other relationships, even your concern for your own life, pale in comparison. Again, we can kind of get this idea. Thinking back to Matthew 10, we just heard, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we see this relative idea of hate versus love in several times in the Old Testament. We will look at all of them. But in Genesis 29, you might remember this. It says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. That word for Leah being unloved is the word for hated. So it's saying here that Jacob loved Rachel and he hated Leah. Now, it doesn't mean that Jacob treated Leah with scorn or actively hated her like we might think of somebody hating, but he didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. So we need to ask ourselves, based on Jesus' command in this verse, how does our love for Christ compare to our love for our most precious ones on the earth? We know the greatest commandment. One example is Mark Uh, uh, 1230, Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So if we love anything more than God, what are we doing? We're breaking the greatest commandment. It's not a minor thing to break the greatest commandment, is it? Just as an aside, before we move on, I find it interesting as I study the Gospels in more detail going through this, looking for claims of Jesus divinity. And there are lots of them, of course, some more obvious like John 1:1 1, and 1, when Jesus says later on that he is the I am, lots of places where it's clear that Jesus is saying, "I am God. But in this passage, I think we also get a glimpse of Jesus' claims to deity. Because if a mere man said this sort of thing, you must hate the closest people in your life, you must hate even your own life to follow me, you would call him a psychopathic cult leader. There are many examples in history of men who demand this sort of following for themselves, and the people end up uh, dead often, following this man this, who has a, perhaps a messiah complex. This, these cult leaders... But since Jesus is the Son of God, he can expect and even demand this sort of commitment from his followers. When Jesus quotes the greatest commandment, it's not just for following God the Father, but for following Jesus himself. And when you follow Jesus, he says, you're following God and vice versa. You can't follow God without following Jesus. And so even in this this passage here, Jesus doesn't explicitly say so, but the demands he makes from us to be his disciples show that he is claiming Deity, The kind of commitment that is only required, can be required from a person to God himself. Now let's move on to verse 27. Jesus has another thing to say. You must hate your your family and even your own life to be his disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And there are similar statements in parallel uh, sections in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one example would be Luke 9, 23. Jesus said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But in this portion in Luke 14, he puts it in a negative form, where in Luke 9 he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must follow, take up your cross and follow me. He says here, if you do not carry your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, what is a cross? Some of you may have crosses on your neck or on your, your Bible. Pretty obvious what a cross is, but we like to think when Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's talking about things that are difficult in your life in a figurative sense, like illness or difficult relationships or car trouble. It's just a cross we must bear, we might say sometimes. But a cross to these people in this time would mean an instrument of death, And this is not a quick sort of death, quick execution like a firing squad or a hanging or even a more peaceful one like lethal injection. The ones who invented crucifixion were not trying to find a humane way of executing people. They wanted it to be as painful as possible, as humiliating as possible. They would draw it out as long as their merciless crucifiers could make it last. So what does it mean to take up your cross? Jesus uses this really stark... Example of what it means to follow him. Well, we know that condemned men would have their cross laid on their shoulders and they would carry it to the place of execution as Jesus did at least part of the time until he was too weary to carry it any further. Um, So you're carrying the very instrument of your death on your back to the place you're going to be killed. And it may be a little clearer to understand what Jesus is saying here by listening again to Luke 9 where he says... If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So it's a daily cross-taking. Now, how many times did you, if you were going to literally die on a cross, how many times did you carry your cross? Once. You didn't have opportunities to carry it again. But we must take up our cross daily. Every day is a cross day for us, walking with Christ, carrying our cross. And we must deny ourselves, Jesus continues, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So this commitment to Christ, this cross-bearing commitment, involves self-denial, daily cross-taking, and at least a willingness to die for his sake. Leon Morris said this, When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. So followers of Jesus are on a one-way trip with him, even to death. So now at verse 28, we see a couple of illustrations Jesus makes of this commitment we must have to him. These illustrations are unique to Luke. And one commenter had some good descriptions of these two illustrations. He calls them the rash builder and the reasonable king. The rash builder and the reasonable king. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So this is a tower, some translate it farm building. In any case it's a large structure, maybe a watchtower, over some property or on a city wall. But you don't want to just build this thing. You don't just start building. You have to plan first. Sit down. You run the numbers. See if you have enough money to finish it. Or just lay the foundation. Laying a foundation for a tower is no good for anybody. And when people see this unused foundation or a half-built tower, they mock the builder. Understandably so. Another illustration of the reasonable king, verse 31. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So in this case, there's a king with another king coming his way with twice as many soldiers as he has. Now, maybe this king has better trained soldiers, he has better equipment, better walls, or maybe he doesn't. And if he doesn't, it's better to make a peace treaty at a distance before your opponent gets there, ready to fight. And I think there's the same lesson here, maybe some slight differences in the emphases, but same lesson here for both these illustrations. Count the cost of what you want to do. Now, in, in this particular setting, I'm guessing it was pr- maybe a pleasant walk and a beautiful day following Jesus, and that may be great, following Jesus in this, this time of, of, of plenty of joy, of prosperity, but are you willing to suffer for his sake? Are you willing to give up all your relationships and even your life, if necessary, for him? That's what Jesus is saying. They they must be willing to do all these things to follow him. And then he adds one more thing in verse 33 that we must need to be willing to lose. Verse 33 says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And this is another very strong statement, obviously. None of you all his own possessions. And again, we ask ourselves, is this meant to be taken literally? And some have said it requires literal giving up all you have for Jesus, all your earthly possessions for Jesus' sake, kind of a, a monkish attitude. But again, if you think of, if you apply this too literally, it becomes absurd even to think about it. We'd have to give away all our clothing. We'd have to give away our homes to live in. We have no food to eat. You imagine just lying somewhere, with absolutely nothing. There are people like that in this world who have absolutely nothing except maybe a, a few scraps of clothing. And Jesus isn't telling us to live like that. Just one example, we are told to honor our parents with our wealth, aren't we? But how can we honor our parents by helping them with their material needs if we don't have anything? In fact, we have this very situation. They said, oh, my my stuff, my, my wealth is given to God. I can't help you out, Parents because my, my money's already earmarked for God's work. But God said, now take care of your parents. Must take care of our families elsewhere in Scripture. Take care of your own. We also, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we don't see other strong commands like this elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in First Timothy, Paul warns about the desire to get rich, and he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. But he doesn't say, give all your stuff away. So we hold on loosely to our possessions, but we don't have to give it all away. But again, as we did earlier, even as we acknowledge that Jesus is exaggerating, using hyperbole, we don't want just to, to note that and move on, but we need to ask ourselves seriously, how attached are we? To our stuff. Jesus says, if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. So we need to think about this carefully. One of the first words out of most babies' mouths is, what? At least in English, mine, mine. And some adults don't always grow out of that attitude, do they? And truth be told, we don't always do it ourselves. If people look at our lives, do they see someone who seems primarily concerned about his earthly goods, or do we hold loosely to our possessions? Is, is our stuff what we like to talk about, what we take care of, what we treasure, or do we hold loosely to it? Doesn't mean we can't have a nice home and nice car and clothes and other things, but we need to remember Jesus' words from earlier in Luke, Luke twelve fifteen. he says, Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So Jesus is saying here, to be his disciples, we can't get too attached to our material goods. Instead, we must be ready to share, knowing that God has given these good things to us, but they still ultimately belong to him, and we are only stewards of them. We're caretakers for a little while. So when you say, this is my home, my house, my car, my phone, whatever, my children, my wife, those are all good gifts from God and he has the right to them. We need to be good stewards, but not hold on so tightly to them. And if God sees fit to take them away from us, we accept that also as a sign of his goodness to us, that God has heavenly treasures that far outweigh the earthly ones. But Jesus has a couple more comments here at the end of this passage. Verse 34, Therefore salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile it is thrown out and this has a parallel in the sermon on the mount in matthew 5:13 jesus said you are the salt of the earth if the salt has become tasteless how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men and mark has something similar a little, little bit different 9:50 salt is good but if the salt becomes unsalty with what will it you make it salty again have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we have a similar illustration about salt in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in different places, they're not really parallel passages. Point here is that salt is good as long as it is what? Salty. <laughs> if you don't ha- salt saltiness is the only thing that really makes salt worth anything. If the salt doesn't have saltiness, then it's useless. It's just ready to be thrown out. What's Jesus' point here? Well, it's in the context of discipleship and commitment to Christ. So he's asking, are you a salty disciple? Are you someone who has the strong savor of the Savior? Or is there no flavor of Christ in you? And if there's no flavor of Christ in you, you are a useless disciple and not even really a disciple at all. And so Jesus, as he finishes this Exhortation to these people here, he says finally at the end of verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or you could say it like this, he who has ears to hear, hear. Or, he who has ears to hear, listen. Jesus uses this phrase a few times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in all three of them, when he gives the parable of the soils, he says something like this, other seed, Luke eight eight. other seed fell into the good soil and grew up, and produce the crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." This is another way for Jesus to emphasize the importance of what he's saying. We saw this in the past, where he says, "Truly, I say to you," he says that fifty-one times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or in John, he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you," or he'll say. I tell you something, like in verse 24 of Luke 14. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So Jesus uses these terms, truly I say to you, or truly, truly, or I tell you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay close attention to what I'm saying. This is very important. Don't disregard it. But this one here, this phrase Jesus gives here, this puts the responsibility on the hearer, doesn't it? He can say, truly, I say to you, and so forth. But in this case, he's saying, you have to listen. Each one of you have a responsibility to hear and to, to obey what I'm telling you right now. Jesus also uses this phrase in Revelation. You might recall in Revelation 2 and 3, he has seven letters to the churches. After the end of each one, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if Jesus had a special individual message for Pilgrim Bible Church, like he did for the church in Ephesus and so forth, wouldn't you want to pay special attention to it? He certainly would. And so Jesus says, as he sends these letters to these churches, listen to what I'm saying to you. Hear it and obey it. Now, having heard Jesus' words to these would-be followers, we know what he might say about the seeker-sensitive movement. These people wanted to walk along with him. They were literally following him. But did they really want to follow him in the, in the truest sense? Jesus is being very fair and upfront. He's not promising them a bed of roses, knowing the tribulation they'd face. He was always, uh, bold and, and truthful about the fact that they would suffer, suffer persecution as his, his followers. Following Jesus is a serious matter and requires serious consideration. Well, any questions so far as we get some application points? All right, well, let's close with a few thoughts here. First of all, it's some easy things think, easy to think about, easy to ask a question, I should say. Easy to pull some application points from here, but hard to do, hard to really uh, accept because we know how weak and frail we are. First of all, do you love Christ above all earthly things? Do you love Christ above all earthly things? If you had a scientific gadget to measure your love for various people and things, where would the detector spike? Would your love for Christ be off the charts? We could ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to love Christ? What are some signs of love for Christ? Well, one thing is pretty straightforward. Do you have great affection for him, a desire to be with him, whether it be in this life and in, in some a private time with him, or to be with him in heaven. Remember what Paul said in Philippians one twenty three. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He wanted to work, he wanted to labor for Christ's sake, but he wanted even more to be with Christ. That is the better thing. Or maybe right now you feel like the church at Ephesus. Revelation two four. While they had stood firm against evil in their midst, Jesus says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. So in terms of their hatred of sin, maybe their doctrinal correctness, they were they were good, but they didn't have the same love for Christ as they did at first. They have left their first love. Their love had grown cold. So do you have an affection for Christ or desire to be with him? Also, do you want to know him and learn from him as a disciple? And we do that by studying him and his word. That's the great goal of this study of the gospels for all these many years is to get to know Christ and to love him more. We can ask ourselves, are we able to say with Paul, Philippians 3 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So all the things that he would count on his credit side in the past, before Christ, now he counts them all loss. All he wants to do is know Christ. Everything else is rubbish so that he may gain Christ. So do we we want to know him and learn from him? And one last thing, are we obedient to him? Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, notice he doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you love me. There are people who keep Jesus' commandments who may not love Christ. But if you love Jesus, if you say you love Jesus, you will do what he says. It's perfectly plain. How can we say we love Jesus and don't do what he says? So if you're gauging your love for Christ, what, what is your affection for him, your desire to be with him? What's your desire to know him and learn from his word? And what is your level of obedience to him? How committed are you to following his word? That's how we can gauge if we love him above all earthly things. Another question to ask ourselves, and it gets kind of hard to do in this place perhaps, but what if the people you love most on earth demanded that you choose between them and Christ? Now it's not so likely perhaps in our day in this place, but some of you may have experienced that. You may have had family members who have said, if you follow Christ, I will... Uh, kick you out of our family. You are no longer my son or my daughter. Uh, I've heard many stories like that. Uh, thankfully, I have not experienced that. But there could be times in your life when your loved ones might say, you got to choose between me and Jesus. And what would you do? It's hard to say ahead of time what it would happen, but we need to think about those things. Another question to ask ourselves, what if God were to take away everything that you love most on the earth? If God took away your money, your spouse, your children, your health. How would you respond? We know a man who had that very thing. Job. Job one. We have Satan approaching God. Job one verse nine. Satan answered the Lord, "Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands." And his, incres- and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So Satan says, well, Job only follows you because you've given him good stuff. Take it away and see what happens. And so his wealth was stolen, his children were killed, and yet we see in Job 1, verse 21, Job said, Job said Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So in this challenge, does Job love his stuff or his children more than God? No, he doesn't. He loves God more. Then verse 3 of chapter 2, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and says, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. So maybe it's one thing to lose your your children and your, your stuff, but what about your health? Well, verse 10, uh, Job's wife has suggested that he curse God and die. Verse 9, Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So Job knew God gives and God takes away. And if God gives, it's for a good purpose. If he takes away, it's for a good purpose. And God's love is constant. His goodness to us is constant. And so Job accepted these things. Doesn't mean it didn't hurt, didn't mean it wasn't wasn't painful and and devastating, uh, causing great grief. But God, God was still the, the thing that Job loved the most, and, and Job would try to understand as much as he could God's purpose in these things. Now it's easy to say in the safe place that I'd love God no matter what. If this happened to, what happened to Job happened to me, I'd certainly follow Christ. Well, again, it's easy to say that. We can't know unless it happens. But I'll say this. If you're not cultivating love for God now, it's not suddenly going to appear when things get difficult, is it? Let's look at Matthew 13. We have here the parable of the, the sower or the soils. We have the various kinds of seed lands in different places. Some lands on the side of the road, and some falls in rocky places, some falls in thorns, some falls in good soil. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 13. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So if affliction or persecution arises in these uh, these plants that are are not deeply rooted, do the roots just get even stronger when the persecution happens? It's like, oh, now the the plants are going to get really serious about digging into the soil. No, the truth is, if you have shallow roots when things are good, what are your roots going to do when things get tough? They're going to shrivel up. They're going to die. Verse 22 the one who on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of the wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So this man had worries in the world, they have the the, the wealth that deceives them, it becomes unfruitful. Again, if you are not following Christ when you have no wealth, when you have no worries, maybe as a young person you don't have that much stuff. It may be easier to follow Christ, but as the the worries of the world come down on you and and wealth seems to to flee away, you have deceitful wealth leaving your pockets at record pace. Does that mean you're going to love God more if you haven't loved him before, if you haven't pursued him, you don't have deep roots again? When times are good, what happens when times get bad? Difficult. They choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. So again, when you have not cultivated love for Christ... Commitment to Christ when things are easier in life. Don't expect them to get better when things get more difficult. Chances are they're going to get worse. Another thing to ask yourself, is your walk with Christ a road of taking up your cross? Is your walk with Christ a road of taking up your cross? Listening to some so-called gospel presentations, you might expect Becoming a Christian to fix your marriage, fix your family, make you rich. But the opposite might occur. If you become a Christian, you might lose your wife. You might destroy your your family. It might make you lose all your wealth. There is great joy and peace in following Christ, but it may make some aspects of your life harder. There may be persecution or rifts in your family. And beyond that, there's a struggle with sin as you try to obey Christ. And when you're not a Christian, does it matter if you sin or not? Not really too much to you. But when you know Christ or want to follow Christ, you see you're a wretched man, as Paul says in Romans 7. You have this, this struggle in you as you want to fight sin. Paul talks about putting sin to death in Colossians 3. So we have this, this struggle inside of us and possibly struggles outside of us as we follow Christ. And are we willing to do that, taking up our cross, even to the point of death. Again, it's hard to answer right now in in the the bright sunshine and a beautiful Lord's Day morning, but it's something we have to consider for ourselves, not just set it aside. The Christian life is not a life of self-indulgence or self-glory or self-preservation, self-protection, but it's the life of a cross, and we must see it that way, despite all the joys we have in knowing Christ. Now, having said all these things, it sounds really negative, difficult, even impossible. And it would be easy to see these demands of Jesus in Luke 14 and never follow him in the first place or maybe just give up. It may seem hopeless to love Christ like this. And the truth is, it is. Jesus makes impossible demands of us. But he doesn't leave us without help. He doesn't say, here's an impossible task. Go do it. Like you were going to try try to tell me to scale some, some great mountain, I couldn't do it. But Jesus gives us help to do what he he requires us to do that would be, in ourself, impossible. I thought of John chapter 21, just thinking about how frail we are. And remember, Peter has denied Christ three times before Jesus went to the cross. He was trying to save his own skin. Even after he had said, I will do this for you. And we can easily easily say, yes, I will stand firm for Christ. If somebody teases me or threatens my job or whatever it might be, I'm going to follow Christ no matter what. And then difficulty comes, what happens? Fall over, even as Peter did. All our boasts were nothing, they were empty boasts. And it would have been... Perhaps easy for Peter, like like Judas did, to go hang himself. Well, I, I fail Jesus. I, I give up. I, I can't ever do what He requires me to do. Why even bother? In John twenty one. Jesus is speaking to Peter after the resurrection. And in verse. Uh, well, we don't really do the whole thing. Actually, let, let's yeah, let's do that. Verse fifteen. Um, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the question is, what does he mean there? Is it more than, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Or do you love me more than these disciples do? Is your love for me greater than than the love that, say, John or, or James or others have? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus asked him three times if he loved him. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Weak though it was, Peter's love for Christ was real. Even though Peter denied Christ to save his own skin, but Peter had to rely on the knowledge of Christ's love, or Christ's knowledge of Peter's love for Christ. And if, if you have just sinned terribly and. You feel disgusted with yourself and you feel horrendous. And Jesus walked in the room right then and said, so-and-so, do you love me? You might say, how can I say I love you in a time like this? I've just shown you by my disobedience that I don't really love you as I ought to. And yet, I trust you, Jesus, that you know that I love you. My love is very small. It's weak. It just fell over today. But you know that I love you. We rest and that knowledge that Christ understands our love for him, even when it is weak. And sometimes we grieve because we've sinned, or our love for Christ has gone cold, and we don't feel like we can even approach him because we are so weak and sinful. But Christ understands and loves us, and wants us to be close to him even more than we do ourselves. You know that Christ wants you more than you want him? Christ loves you more than you love him? It's easy to say again, but It's always true. Christ wants us to be with him, wants us to be close to him, and that's what we rely on. He's going to to give us the strength to do these things. Let's close with some words from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is, we hold fast what we believe, what we we confess with our mouth about Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you are weak, if your love for Christ is weak, if you feel like you can't follow him, that's that's true for all of us. But we can come to him because he sympathizes with us, and we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That is, we, can, we can entreat him on our knees in prayer with repentant hearts so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He will help us when we ask him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words from Jesus, difficult though they are. And I confess for myself, my love is not what it ought to be at any time. You have made high demands of us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And which of us can say we've loved you with that level of intensity? Continuously, we fall short moment by moment, day by day. And yet we know this is something you require of us if we want to be your disciples. And so we throw ourselves at your feet and ask for your help. We we cannot do this on our own. We must have the Holy Spirit in us to energize us to live a life that shows a love and a commitment to Christ. We pray, Father, that if there are those here who don't truly know you, that aren't truly your disciples, that you would... Encourage them by these words, even though they see an impossible task, knowing that uh, by faith, by your grace, they can do these things, that they come to you repentant and asking for forgiveness and trusting Christ alone for their salvation. For those of us who have maybe walked with Christ for a long time and know that we don't follow him with the love we ought to, may we also come in a repentant manner to, to you, find grace to help in time of need. We are not up to this task. We cannot walk with Christ. We cannot love him as we ought to. We cannot set aside our earthly possessions. We cannot have the proper relationship of love between you and our love for other things in our lives, even our own life. We, We pray for your help. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your energy to do what you've called us to do, that we might love Christ more, and walk in a manner worthy of Him. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.